Father, we love you so much. And we thank you, God, that we can come together and worship you and we can learn from your word. And Father, we desire not to just get smarter. We desire not to just know more facts, but we want to be changed by the spirit of God. We pray that it's you speaking, that you would use it and that you would fill us and that you would lead us and that the change that happens in our lives would be sustainable by the power of your spirit, not just emotionally based that fizzle out, not just a self-help system, but your word, your spirit, your life growing in us. And God, we commit to partnering with you in that work you desire to do in our lives. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen. Amen. All right, we're going to be in Mark chapter 3 and turn there. And while you're turning there, I just want to uh, point some things out. You guys remember last week in Mark chapter 2, we saw Jesus criticized for many things. And he was criticized for the amazing miracles that he was doing. Remember, the religious leaders were upset that he was healing. They were upset that he was healing on the Sabbath. They were saying things like, they were upset that he was saying things like, your sins are forgiven, right? They were upset because he was eating with tax collectors and sinners. And he was being criticized and judged for all of those things. One of the things was that he seemed to have violated the Sabbath because he was walking through the field and his disciples picked off the the heads of grain, rubbed them between their hands, and they were eating that on the Sabbath. And so he was criticized for that. And if you remember, Jesus proclaimed to them that the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And he also said, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. Right? So he was saying, the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. In other words, he was saying, I am the one who makes these decisions, right? And Sabbath was created um, for man. All right, let's read Mark 3, verses 1 through 6. It says, and he, that's Jesus, entered the synagogue again, and a man was there who had a withered hand. So they, talking about the Pharisees, watched him closely, whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man who had the withered hand, step forward. Then he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they kept silent, and when he had looked around at them with anger, being grieved by the hardness of their hearts, he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored as whole as the other. Then the Pharisees went out and immediately plotted with the Herodians against him how they might destroy him. There's so much in this, these little, these few six verses, but I want to say one of the first things that jumped out at me is the fact that Jesus, in the face of criticism, in the the face of persecution, as well as fame, that he stayed true to the vision for which he came. What we see is that Jesus was all about his purpose. He was all about it, and he stayed with it. He was where he was supposed to be, and he did what he was supposed to do. Notice that it says in verse 1, 
Jesus went to the synagogue again. He went to the synagogue again, as was his custom. He would go there and he would teach. Why did Jesus come to this earth? And that may seem like a silly question to us. If you were raised in church or even in church for a while, you think, well, we know why Jesus came to earth. He came to die on the cross and rise again. Well, that is true. But there are actually many reasons that he came to this earth. The overarching purpose was to glorify the Father and to redeem and reconcile a lost world to God. And in this passage, just in these six verses, I see four of the reasons that Christ came. And it's revealed to us here. The first thing, Jesus purposed to care for people and to heal them. He purposed to care for people. He did care for people. Jesus cares for you. He cares for you individually. He cares for the body of Christ as a whole he cares. Notice that it said in verse 1, and he said to the man who had the withered hand, step forward. Jesus noticed the man. He noticed him. He saw him in a room full of people. He saw a man that he had probably never met before. He noticed him. And he looked at him and he said, step forward. Now, what's interesting about this is Jesus just got through talking to people who are criticizing him, who are persecuting him, and you know that Jesus knew that as soon as he did what he knew he was going to do, it was going to come again. More persecution. He knew it. But he was about his purpose of caring for people. The interesting thing was that the Pharisees knew that the man was also disabled, and not only did they know that, but they immediately suspected that Jesus would heal him. Wow, what a reputation that Jesus had. They suspected that as soon as Jesus saw the man with the withered hand, that he would heal him on the Sabbath. Now, some people think that this man with the withered hand was a plant, that, that they, the Pharisees got together and they put this man in there because they wanted to catch Jesus. That's an interesting philosophy or theory, but it doesn't say that in Scripture. In fact, in Matthew and Luke, where this is also recorded, it does not say that it was any kind of trick. It was a man with a withered hand, and he went to church. And by church, I mean the synagogue. He went there, Jesus walked in, and he saw him. This withered hand, the word actually means twisted, gnarled. The withered hand was so deformed that it was not usable, and it was gnarled. It was twisted up. Now, what was the man going through, you think? He's sitting there in church. Was he sitting on the edge of the crowd? Was he sitting against the wall as far back as he or as far over as he could? Was he sitting in the back? You know, was he, did he want to be seen, or would he rather not be seen? I want to tell you that in those times, in that culture, if somebody had a deformity like that, if they were born with that, they were considered either cursed by God or punished by God for having that, been born with that deformity. So when I picture this man 
going to the synagogue, a couple of things come to me. Number one is why? Why would he put himself in a situation where he was going to be criticized and judged? It must be because he wanted to worship. It must be because he had some, in, in him somehow he had a measure of faith. He had a desire to, to be in the presence of God. There was a spark there. There was something there that caused him to put himself in that situation where he could receive now, was he sitting there openly? I think he was probably to the side or to the back. I think he might have had his hand tucked in his robe, thinking something like, well, they all know that I'm deformed, but they don't have to look at it. I think that's a possibility. I think he could have, even though he came, I think he could have been self-conscious about his deformity. I think we, most of us are. If there's something that we consider or we perceive as not the mainstream or the norm, we tend to want to hide that and cover it up. So I don't think it's a leap to think that perhaps he was going through that. But I do believe there was a flicker of faith, at least, a flicker of hope that something good might happen. We know this, the man had an obedient heart. And why do we know this? Because when Jesus said, step up, he did it. He did it. And verse 5 says, he said to the man, stretch out your hand, and he stretched it out. So not only was he obedient, but there was some faith that it took to do that because can you imagine a withered hand? He can't stick it out. He can't hold it out. I mean, that was the whole problem. The whole problem was that he was deformed and the hand was withered. And to put it out there took faith to take that step. So he's obedient. And he had faith. And the word says, and he stretched it out, and his hand was restored as whole as the other. Imagine that. Imagine what that man felt, what he thought, what he saw. Imagine what the other people at the synagogue saw. You know what's amazing to me? Was that it wasn't just this man that Jesus healed. We know all through scripture it talks about the miracles of Christ. And we know that this is one of the purposes for which he came. Matthew 9, 35 through 38. You can turn there. Matthew 9, 35 through 38. It says, Then Jesus went about all the cities and villages teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. And when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. What was the motivation for Christ? What was the motivation for healing, 
for ministering, it wasn't just because it was his job description. It was because he loved, he had compassion for people. He had compassion on this man in the book of Mark with the withered hand. And I want to tell you right now that there are people in this room that walk around with withered parts within themselves. I'm not just talking about physical withering. I'm talking about inside of you there are things that feel withered, that feel unusable, that feel like you have been rejected and you walk around torn and disabled because of these things in your life. Guess who cares for you? Jesus cares for you. Guess what? He is still a miracle-working God. And I want to warn you, for you people who have bought into this idea that God doesn't heal things, or that you, you bought into this idea that things are deeper, and oh, poor Pastor Jim. Poor Pastor Jim, he just expects God to just to heal something miraculously when things take a lot of time to work out. You know what? Sometimes they do. And sometimes God heals you instantly. But I want to tell you what, whether you're healed instantly, whether he, he heals you in the midst of it or he heals you through it, it is still God. We're to approach God with obedience and faith. When was the last time you asked him, gave it over to him? When was the last time you stepped out and obediently did what he told you to do? You don't have good communication with your kids or your spouse and you're always watching TV and God tells you to turn the TV off or get rid of it and you just ignore it because you're like, that's just religious, that's probably not God. God tells you to get rid of your smartphone and get a dumb phone <laughs> and you know why. But you don't do it because you have all kinds of reasons. Obedience and faith go hand in hand. The second thing I see here is that Christ purposed to preach repentance and deliverance. He purposed to preach. So first of all, he purposed to heal and to love. Second of all, he purposed to preach repentance and deliverance. In our passage in Mark, Jesus went into the synagogue to do what he was called to do, to preach and teach. Sometimes people think that the primary reason that Christ came was just to do miracles. And miracles are amazing. But I want to tell you that was part of it, but it wasn't all of it. Yes, the miracles pointed to his divine nature. But the word says there was more to it than that. Seeing a miracle does not save a person, does not cause them to be born again and does not necessarily cause them to recognize their need for God or that they're a sinner. Jesus came to preach repentance. Look at Matthew 4, verse 12 through 17. Matthew 4, starting in verse 12. It says, Now when Jesus heard that John had been put in prison... He departed to Galilee, and leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is by the sea, in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light, and upon those who sat in the region, the shadow of death, light 
has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The light has dawned. The revelation of Jesus Christ has dawned, and he preached repentance. Mark 1, we went through this a couple of weeks ago with Pastor Derek teaching. Mark 1, verse 35 says, Now in the morning, having risen a long while before daylight, Jesus went out and departed to a solitary place. And there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him. And when they found him, they said to him, Everyone is looking for you. But he said to them, Let us go into the next towns that I may preach there also, because for this purpose I have come forth. Because for this purpose I have come forth. What purpose? To preach. And he was preaching in their synagogues throughout all Galilee and casting out demons. Jesus came to heal, and Jesus came to preach and to teach. Third thing that jumped out at me, Jesus' purpose to shake up religious paradigms and break down the religious walls that separate people from God. I want to tell you, right here, we could be thinking about those dumb Pharisees, those crazy scribes. We don't want to be like them. Listen. Sometimes we are like them. Sometimes we can get super religious. And as we go through this, I want you to consider your life. I'm going to consider my life. What actions do I have that are pharisaical, that are religious? Have I added things to God's word that isn't really there because I have my own religious system? And do I require myself and others to do it, or really do I just require it of others, but I give myself a pass? Because that was the height of Phariseeism. So let's look at this. Remember in Mark chapter 2 last week, uh, we noticed many examples of religious leaders losing their minds practically over what Jesus was doing. You know, and I, I have this idea that the Pharisees really thought that Jesus was purposely trying to make their lives miserable. In Mark 3, 2... And following, we see that the Pharisees were trying to catch Jesus. They were trying to catch him. They were watching him so that they could catch him doing something punishable. Why? Because they had this bitterness against him because they, he was coming into the world and he was telling them that they didn't have to do everything that the Pharisees said. It wasn't like what the Pharisees said. And as the people in the synagogues and the Jewish people heard and understood that the Pharisees were losing their mind. Why? Because they had set up all of these religious systems that they wanted people to do and walk through all of these hoops that people had to jump through. And here was Jesus not jumping through their hoops. Here's Jesus telling people they didn't have to do all of that. In verse 4, Jesus responds to the Pharisees. He knows that they're trying to catch him. And he says, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? So Jesus knows they're judging him because he just healed the man on the Sabbath or he's about to heal the man on the Sabbath. And so he asks them, what's better? Is it lawful to do good or evil, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. 
And it says that Jesus got angry and grieved. Angry and grieved at their hard hearts. Jesus can be angry and truly not sin. Jesus could have righteous anger. I think that we have a hard time proving that our anger is ever truly righteous. Because there's always these things in our heart that we don't even know about half the time. Little motivations. And we say we're righteously angry or whatever. But really, sometimes, I'm not sure. But Jesus, I know. Jesus, I know, could be angry and be perfectly angry and perfectly sinless. And he was angry at their hard hearts and also grieved. He was angry at the injustice to the people and angry at the lack of value that was assigned to humanity. You guys know that when the, the Sabbath was introduced by God, it was introduced to enrich people's lives. It was introduced so that people would have a focus on God, that they would cease from their labors and they would consider the goodness of God, that they would have a grateful heart, that they would be able to be filled with rest. They could take a breath. It was a good thing. But what you may not realize is that the religious leaders of the day took those original laws given by God and added their own laws and their own rules to it. And it may have been because they wanted to help put bumpers on people, you know, put some uh, parameters or boundaries to help people obey the law, and I totally get that. We do that with our children, for example. You know, we don't want them to do certain things, so we think, well, in order for them not to do the certain things, if I tell them not to do this, they'll never even get close to that. We do that. And maybe that's how it all started. Maybe that's how the laws that the Pharisees came up with and added to God's law, maybe that was the goal. However, it turned out to be a form of manipulation. It turned out to be a form of control. It became the very base form that a religious leader could use to get people to do what they thought was right. So Jesus was angry. He was angry at their lack of value for humanity. You guys remember in Matthew chapter 12, it said, Jesus said, What man is there among you who has one sheep, and if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will, not, uh, will you not lay hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value then is a man than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. So in Matthew, Jesus points out, you're valuing the wrong things, religious leaders. You're valuing the wrong things. You should be valuing humanity. You should be valuing the lives of people, their feelings, what they're going through, helping to relieve their burden, but instead you're adding more burdens into their lives by things that God never asked them to do. How did it come to this for the Pharisees? What, what happened? You know, I, I think of biblical history, I think of the time from the end of the Old Testament to the coming of Christ, the 400 years 
that, that really no prophecies came forth. And during that time, not only no prophecies came forth, but there, there wasn't a lot of hope. I mean, the Messiah hadn't come yet. They were just going through life. They were just trying to hold on, some of them, to their faith in God, knowing that the Messiah would eventually come. And I can imagine that there was a breakdown. I, rem- I can imagine that people were absolutely uh, dying of spiritual thirst, Wondering if God saw them, wondering what was going on and if, if God answered prayer anymore. I can imagine that it seemed very, very quiet and very bleak. And during that period of time, as the law continued to develop and more and more restrictions were put on, the pressure that people were living under, even in the New Testament times from that, the law of man became extremely burdensome. There were unjust measures, unjust measures and requirements that were put on people. You know, the the Pharisees could tell you that you had to do this, 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 and this, but they didn't have to do it themselves. Or they would have a form of godliness. They would look like they were godly. They would wear all the right clothes and say all the right words at the synagogue. But their lives were full of pus and infection. It was not good. And maybe sometimes you have fallen into that trying to look good. I'm not just talking about physically. But I mean just trying to appear good at church. When you know that on the inside there's some serious issues You may not think that's religious, but that is religious. Matthew 23, if you get a chance to read that chapter, I encourage you to read it. It's the seven woes. The seven woes. uh, And this was said to the religious leaders, and I'm just going to read one of them. Matthew 23, verses 27 and 28. Jesus says... Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Even so, you also outwardly appear righteous to men, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. There's a religious bondage that comes when we require things of other people that we don't require of ourselves. And somehow we make everybody think that we are just the same. We act like we're doing it. And we don't realize what we're doing to ourselves, what we're doing to our heart, to our walk with God, to live that kind of hypocrisy. Ultimately, religious bondage was destroyed on the cross for all who respond and give themselves, surrender themselves to Christ. It was destroyed, and yet many believers today still live under that bondage. We don't have to be in bondage to religion. Do you remember last week's message about the old wineskin and the new wine? And how if you put new wine into an old wineskin that's all brittle and hard, it it bursts. And Pastor Derek told us that the way you, what you do with that old wineskin is you soak it in oil. And the oil represents the Holy Spirit. 
and that wineskin becomes supple and moldable once again so that the new wine of what God is trying to teach you, what God is trying to take you through, what God is doing in our church, what God is doing in your family, no longer becomes offensive to you, but you want those things of the Spirit, and you want those things, even though it looks like change, you begin to want whatever God is doing because you're no longer afraid of the change. You no longer feel threatened by the difference between now and what it used to be. If you're a believer living in legalism, God really wants you to live free from that. And you know, I, I've been there before, and I heard somebody earlier say, I've been there. I've been there before too, and I think that we all have the potential to get back to that legalistic state if we're not careful, if we don't continue to ask God to show us, if we don't stay in the word, if we don't let his spirit work in us. If we live in unrepentant sin and we're still involved in church life, I guarantee you, your heart's gonna become hardened and the only way you're gonna be able to function is by pretending to be somebody you're not. And that's the danger of unrepentant sin. God never expects you to be perfect this side of heaven. He doesn't expect that. The expectation is that you will fall on your face at the cross and let him begin to do that work and that change in you. And so we don't have to live in unrepentant sin. We don't have to be religious because Christ provided relief for that and freedom from that bondage. The fourth thing I see in this passage that jumped out at me is that Jesus always kept his eye on the ultimate goal, which was reconciling the lost to his father. He always kept his eye on it. Uh, you know, Jesus knew his time had not yet come. Let's read verses 7 through 12 of chapter 3 of Mark. It says, but Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great multitude from Galilee followed him, and from Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea, and beyond the Jordan, and those from Tyre and Sidon, a great multitude, when they heard how many things he was doing, came to him. So he told his disciples that a small boat should be kept ready for him because of the multitude, lest they should crush him. For he healed many, so that as many as had afflictions pressed about him to touch him. I'm going to pause right there for a second. So, you know, we talked about this. Remember, they, for, for 400 years, there had been silence or seeming silence from heaven. In the New Testament days with the birth of Christ and that whole era, what we see is people are still looking for the Messiah. They hear about this man who is healing people, who's raising the dead, right, who's doing amazing things, and his teaching is different. His teaching is different from anything they've ever heard. And so they begin to flock to him. For years, they've been hiding the fact that they have deformities. They've been hiding the fact that they're sick. They've been hiding it. Why? Because they don't want to be judged. They don't want to be judged that they're cursed or being disciplined from God. They hide it. All of a sudden, here's Jesus who is healing people left and right. And they come out 
in droves. They bring their family. They bring their friends so that they can be healed. And this huge throng, some uh, theologians think maybe as many as 50,000 people from all over the region throng and they come in. And it says that Jesus, not wanting to be crushed, says, keep a little boat right here for me. Now, you guys realize that Jesus could have levitated above the crowd. He could have been translated from one place to the other. He could have said a word and the entire crowd would have fallen down. I don't know why he did it this way. You know, I, I like the action movie answer instead. You know, that he wiped them all out or pushed them away or did whatever. But he didn't do that. He said, have a boat ready. And he stayed there and he ministered. And I'm not going to talk about this tonight. But next week, you're going to hear about how even his family thought he was out of his mind. Even his family thought that he was crazy and they didn't know who he was. They didn't believe in him. You're going to see that next week. So here's Jesus. He's got a huge crowd, however many there actually were, I don't know. Huge multitudes coming. And what, what's amazing to me is that, again, even though he knew that he was going to be criticized and persecuted, he's there doing what he's called to do. Let's read the part about the, uh, the demons. That's kind of action movie-like. I'm going to start in verse 10. It says, For he healed many, so that as many as had afflictions pressed about him to touch him, and the unclean clean spirits, whenever they saw him, fell down before him and cried out, saying, You are the Son of God. But he sternly warned them that they should not make him known. So here are these people that probably didn't really know who he was. They might have, some of them had a revelation. Some of them thought, well, maybe he could be the Messiah. Look at everything he's doing. But a lot of people just thought, man, this is my way. This is my ticket. This is how we're going to make this happen. I'm going to press into this guy and we're going to see what he can do. But the demons... They knew exactly who he was. They knew and they began to call out to him and Jesus said no. You know, I, I said that Jesus always kept his eye on his ultimate purpose, which was reconciling people to God the Father. And he knew when it was time and he knew when it wasn't time. And we see in scripture several times where he has said, not to tell anyone, or that his time had not yet come. And he knew, he knew when it was to be. And I, it's just amazing the authority that he carried, the authority that he carried to command them, and they had to obey. I 
I know we, we talked about miracles tonight, and I just want to tell you that of all the miracles that Christ performed, I think the one that amazes me the most is not when he raised the dead. That's amazing. And it's not when he healed blind eyes, which is astounding. It's not when he cast out demons. It's not when he healed the withered hand. All of those are just tremendous. But the thing that is the most miraculous to me, I think, is what happened on the cross when he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. I mean, who could have that response after they'd been disrespected, called names, humiliated, beaten, spat on, and nailed to a tree? Only Jesus. Again, showing that love was his motivation from the very beginning. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world. Jesus was the representation of the heart of God. We know that Jesus is God. But he represented his Father. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father, Jesus said. That love poured out for you and for me. Tonight, some of you are in need of giving your life to Christ. You desperately need to be forgiven of your sin and have a relationship with him. You can feel it. You know it in your heart. You can sense him calling. You can sense a void in your heart and a desire to feel and experience the love that Christ has for you. You desire to feel completely free and unburdened by the sin that you've committed and you desire to surrender because you know that you cannot do it on your own. Today you are walking around with withered parts to your life. You may work hard to keep it hidden. Addiction, guilt, Bad attitudes, infidelity, dishonesty, loneliness, lying, gossip, the list could go on. Are you sitting here tonight with your withered hand, so to speak, hidden in plain sight, hoping that no one will notice? In the meantime, Christ is calling you. Just like he did the man, he said, stand up. Stretch out your hand. If you want to give your life to Christ, you can do that tonight. Or maybe you're a believer already and you're here and you need healing because of your life and the places in your heart that are withered. Maybe you're tired of hiding that and you're tired of the duplicity of living one way and pretending something else. Uh, we're gonna pray together, and I, I quit early tonight to give us a little time for this, okay? So just relax. We're gonna spend some time in prayer. I'm gonna ask the people on the prayer team to come up, and 
are going to stand up here and pastors and elders, whoever uh, is going to come up. Miriam's going to lead us in some music and I'm going to invite you to stand and I want you to come down and pray. Jesus said, stand up. And then he said, stretch out your hand. Obedience and faith. So I'm going to ask you tonight, we're all going to stand to pray, and I'm going to ask you to come forward for prayer. Don't be afraid of people judging you. Just come up. If you want to accept Christ, if you want to know him, come up and tell them, I need Jesus. If you're a believer who wants some freedom from some things, come up. Come up and, and let's pray together. Okay, can we do that? Let's pray. Father, we love you. Everybody stand up with me, please. We love you, Lord. Thank you for your word. Thank you that it's always relevant. I thank you for each person here, God, and I come to you along with them, and we say, Father, do a work in our lives. God, I pray for those here tonight that may not know you. I pray that you would call them to you, that you would help them, Father, give them the courage and the grace to come forward to receive prayer, to receive you as their personal Lord and Savior. God, I pray for my brothers and sisters, the believers here who have been struggling in some way. Although they can stay where they are to pray, I pray, Father, for the strength and the courage in your spirit to step out in faith, to come forward and pray. We thank you for the work that you've done in our hearts tonight. Father, we want to cling to you. We want to be completely dependent upon you. We thank you, Father, for how you've blessed us. You've poured out such blessing. And we don't deserve it, but we're grateful. We're grateful for your presence. We're grateful that you want to live in the hearts of your people. We pray, God, that this week we will be a light for you, that you would shine through us, that we care about others. And that we would live a Christian life that you desire for us to live and take, make the strides that you want us to make. And we thank you, Father, that you receive us exactly as we are. We praise you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.